I am super excited to have Ron Williams as a guest on Ronderings. We went to Stuyvesant High School together. And though he's someone I did not hang out with in high school, we met in person about a decade ago, reconnected via the world of social media, Facebook, and really hit it off. He is a strategist. He's a humanist. He's brilliant. And most of all, he's my friend. And so this episode about inclusion being about innovation is something that I'm excited for the audience to listen to because his way of thinking about rebuilding systems so that real people make real progress is super inspiring. And yet, very, very practical in my eyes. So take a listen, folks. What's going on, Ronderings Universe? Really excited to have my homeboy from Stuyvesant High School, brother from another mother, Ron J. Williams on the mic. Ron, what's going on, boss? Oh, man. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, uh, it is exciting to be here chatting with you. To get anywhere that two or more Rons are gathered is uh, is a uh, is just good good vibes. I think we know that. So great to see you. Great to hear your voice. We don't get to speak enough, but excited to have this conversation. Absolutely, Ron. Well, to dive right in, as I asked all of my Ronderings podcast guests, what's your story? What is my story? Well, it, you know, we've known each other for quite some time. As you know, there's a point at which you realize, you know, when when, when people ask you that question, like. I could talk for a really long time because I'm just, it's just, I'm just, <laughs> was just, there, there's been enough I got four questions to ask, so don't hang for 50 minutes right, to answer exactly, the question. I will cut exactly, you off. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it starts by a river. No, so, so um, I'm a fan of saying to folks that I'm a, I'm a small town kid. My town happens to have uh, 3 million people in it, right? So I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, went to school outside of Brooklyn, outside the city, but came back and we'll sort of, we'll get there. But the, the sort of, to me, the interesting part about that is I see New York City in, in space time. I see it in four dimensions, right? Because I've lived here for so long. You and I went to high school together. And okay. so I'm constantly walking past and through memories and choices and changes and evolutions of myself and the city. And so there's both a blessing and a curse to that. Like, you know, sometimes there have been times in my life where I've been stuck and I keep walking by the same, it's like ghosts everywhere kind of thing, right? Where I'm walking by these like, things that I wish I'd done differently, but it's mostly a reminder of how quickly things change, right? And that I found to be an incredible boost and burst of energy, right? Like it's on me to kind of shape this reality that I'm living in that I've chosen with my family to kind of live in. So obviously I'm starting back in Brooklyn. So grew up in Brooklyn, born and raised, mom from the South, dad from Harlem, his people from the South. And so in, in a lot of ways, the definitional parts of kind of my childhood are, you know, kind of stern parenting, a fair amount of, you know, kind of religious grounding, or at least we went to church, kind of more on that, maybe later in the conversation, and was fortunate, right? Like, and it took me years to really realize quite, you know, just how fortunate, how how, how much different things could be if I hadn't had both of those parents uh, pushing me in some ways. We didn't always have a ton, but there was always that push. My mother famously would have me sat at the table and wrap my knuckles, you know, when I wasn't doing my math at like five and four and, you know, from an early age, you know, we, we both know as, as, as men of color, you get a variety of the talks. People think it's one the talk. Ain't no one the talk. There's multiple the talks. So you're going to work twice as hard, right, uh, kind of talks when I was young. So you have to do well at math. Even though I was a precocious, animated, high energy, these are all code words for like, I was just turned up as fuck. I was, you know, I was always I was always on 100. Right? I remember it's the Jace class in, in, at Stuyvesant. I was like... Ron Williams in the back is hurt. I was like, damn, okay now. You know, I was, I was, okay I was, I was a, lot of, a lot of energy, a lot of energy. And under the wrong circumstances, that could have gone a lot of different ways. But I was also fortunate that because my parents were advocating for me both at home, and even though they were hard on me at times, also at school. So where a lot of young boys that look like me got pathologized and then turned into problem kids, my parents just wouldn't let that shit happen. And so always grateful for that advocacy and advocacy is a concept that I think shows up a lot in my life now, but it also teachers, let's go talk about teachers for a second. Yeah. I was fortunate. I'm going to shout them out right now. Miss Liza, Miss Liza, Miss Norma, 
Miss Virginia Rose, I think was the first teacher that I, that I, I maybe also had a crush on. I hope that's not embarrassing for her because she must be in her seventies now. Um, <laughs> but Miss Lazar, Miss Norman, Miss Lazar in particular at Montessori school, the women Montessori school in Brooklyn, they mm-hmm. saw me and they, my parents started to advocate. Everybody, you know, brings their, their best. And still, you know, I was one, I was like the only black kid in my class for a number of years there, but they saw me and invested deeply. And when they saw I was good at math, they didn't slow me down. They just fed me books. They fed my brain. When they saw that energy, they channeled. And so that combination, mm. I'm, I'm spending a long time on this and I'm actually getting emotional thinking about it because at the end of the day, my story is short. It's like anybody's. It's like, you know, I try to get stuff done and I was lucky in some ways and, you know, I'm still working on some stuff. That's the story. Everybody's got that story. But these, yeah. these foundational moments that I think really gave me a sense that one, I could do anything if I just find that tribe, I recognize you know, the privilege I do have in the areas where I feel weak or don't feel equipped. I, I seek that tribe, I seek that community and get that help. And so I feel like I, I benefited greatly from that. And so over the course of my educational career, I kind of got to then, I just got a lot of shots on goal. I got a lot of chances that people didn't get. So being a kid born and raised in like East Flatbush to then get to go to Stuyvesant with you, to then get to go to Harvard and show up at Harvard but well-adjusted because I'd already taken BC calculus, you know, at age 16, my junior year, right? But also Mm -hmm. wasn't even remotely the smartest kid in the class, right? Like with these graduating classes of like 800, where I think the year that I graduated in 94, the number one of the number 10 graduate people in our graduating class of 800, like I think I had a 95 average and I barely cracked the top 10% of our class. These two people on a scale of 100 points were separated by 11 thousandths. The folks yep. haven't, myself included, have to think about it. Point zero one one. <laughs> you on a scale of a hundred, right? Like incredibly bananas, man. Bananas, and that was super, super foundational. So that that kind of was like the education played such an important part. You know, being grounded by family played such an important part. But also going to schools outside my neighborhood, where when I come home, because these were white spaces largely, in those spaces. I wasn't white, obviously, right? I wasn't. Right. So there was like the, you know, running in some circles we ran in, like wasn't white enough. It wasn't whatever enough, right? Certainly I was being put up the wall by cops sometimes with calculus books in my backpack. But when I was home, there was a question of like, yo, why are you not in the hood? Why are you not like around, you know, as much as we are? Like what, you know, where, where, where are you at? Like on, on sort of, you know, being being down enough at home. I think those tensions also kind of colored some of my perspective. But ultimately, I felt like I was a person who could do and just like kind of do anything. And I kind of believe that authentically. And so, you know, the the short version of kind of professional part of the story is I left knowing I wanted to go into business, not knowing what that was going to be. I didn't see anybody when I went to Wall Street that I wanted to grow up and become at the time. I think some of that is as much as anything luck. There's certainly been some amazing people who have worked um, on Wall Street and done amazing things and in other places, but I didn't see them. And so I very realized that I didn't want to be the person helping the money get raised. I wanted to be the person building the stuff. And so struck out to sort of look at internet and sort of spent years trying to figure out what I was kind of supposed to be doing. And my travels kind of took me a few different places, but ultimately decided like, maybe I'll just build a regular old business. And I left startup world for a bit to go do a different kind of startup, built an ed company, right? So just a tutoring Mm -hmm. business but couldn't get away from the sort of innovation piece of it, which in this case was ask myself this like important question, like how could we provide better service to kids and to families? And our you know big hypothesis was, well, kids are traveling even then, and this is 20 years ago, kids are rushing out of school after getting up at six in the morning to get to school, to go get to their tutoring or whatever program they have after swim class, after like these kids are overscheduled yeah. and then getting tutoring, right? was kind of the first big aha. What if we actually just brought tutoring to them on campus and then partnered with the teachers to kind of be an extension of their work as opposed to like, think of it as uh, if you teach somebody math in a way that they don't understand two different ways, they're even worse off. So how do you align to the pedagogy and the kind of teaching of the classroom, but do this all on campus? And so we partnered up with a bunch of private schools in New York City and delivered services right on, you know, right on campus, you know, right, right, uh, right in line. And it worked really well. But then my next innovation 
seed for everything that we'll talk about on my side, you know, about like work stuff, which is the business was going, was growing. And I asked myself, well, what's wrong? Why, why is it, why am I not satisfied? It was because I realized I was, it was growing in part because I was getting more clients. I had 30 or 40 tutors working for me and I was charging what felt to me like a lot of money. And I realized that most of the people who looked like me or even some who didn't look like me, but came from maybe similar backgrounds socioeconomically couldn't afford to pay under $25, an hour. And I was like, that's mm. a problem. And so my next innovation was inclusion in that context. And I got administrators to agree. I was like, I showed them the books and I was like, here is what I charge. Here is what I pay my tutors, like my subject for physics, for you know, whatever, for calculus, for other things. I will take my fee down to just cover the cost of my tutors. If you will cover pro rata for anybody on financial aid, you pay proportionally, right? For whatever, whatever you cover of their, um, their uh, uh, tuition, you pay, you cover that much and I'll cover the rest on paying the tutors. And they were like, mm. like, well, sorry, rather, rather we'll, we'll make it so the families only have to cover the wholesale cost of the tutor if you will cover the rest, like in proportion to what, what their financial aid package looks like. Mm. And they said, yeah. And it was cool. And it was just like really yeah. interesting moment for me realizing again, I didn't need to make a bunch of money on that to kind of expand, expand the circle of impact. And I was like this first, like, aha, Scholastic picked up on some of this and asked me to come there and do what they would think of as kind of innovation stuff. And so that was the, that was really my first big, like, oh yeah, you can make money doing good. Like that's interesting. Right. And that was like, I had that suspicion, but this is really my first solid kind of ink, like evidence that this is possible. And that came to define the next bunch of years of work for me is like me always seeking opportunities to leverage technology, to find new ways to better connect folks to give people that didn't have privileged superpowers. So I then ultimately went to Scholastic. I got to acquire a company called uh, teacherspayteachers.com, um, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which is pretty mm. incredible. Um, I was fortunate enough to like have a shot at kind of leading the effort to get that deal done, which is really cool. And so I spent a bunch of time with the founder over a period of months, which is great. When I left Scholastic, it was to go do startup stuff, which I did, pussed around for a bit, kind of invested in like looking at different spaces and then landed on this like idea of, well, why can't people just do business with each other, rent or borrow things from each other kind of at scale? Is that both sustainable for environment and also better for kind of community building? Built something called snapgoods.com, which is one of the early entrants into the sharing economy. Mm-hmm. And then famously, you know, sort of like lots of press had, you know, magazines and newspapers my mom could take to church with her with my face on it, uh, but didn't focus enough on kind of product market fit, like focus on making sure that we had like a really solid thing that people could use every day, right? And kind of a business case around it. Hard lessons learned had to sell the company for nothing, essentially, uh, to uh, my second largest investor. Hurt was pretty certain I'd never work in startups again. And then flash forward, you know, cut to scene, you know, two months later, this awesome startup was asking for my help. And specifically, it was just like, we're trying to figure out all this stuff around, you know, who's our real kind of core customer, ideal customer profile. And I was like, why would you come to me? I don't know anything. And they're like, we're coming to you because you've made a ton of mistakes. And I was like, mistakes? I got. I got you. Uh, And so this is the super extended version of the story, but that's, that's, Mm. that really became my entree into just honestly realizing like my obsession became good ideas are not enough. People say execution, but what does that mean? Sequence really matters for new ventures. How do you first make sure that the thing you're building needs to be built, that you understand what that need is and what the shape of that solution looks like? Then you can scale just about anything. And so skip forward a few years, built a really successful practice, got on the radar of City Ventures. I went inside there to help them with their own internal innovation program, this kind of incubation effort, building ventures inside of Citibank, wound up leading it, like leading strategy for it, becoming the number two there. Mm. Did that for three years. And in the course of doing that, once again, got to do some really cool stuff where we one of the projects we stood up was for divorced and separated parents looking at sharing not custody you know they still they're sharing custody and finances around the kid that they had but don't necessarily want to talk to each other because by definition or you know they're divorced separated yeah, uh, yeah. disproportionately that affects women disproportionately that affects women of color and so to be able to push that rock up the hill with a lot of help from some great people 
And then uh, one of the vendors that I worked with co-created helped us not just quickly validate that's the work that we do is understand how concepts can really show up in the world, validate them quickly, get in the market quickly to see if they're really worth doubling down on. But we actually built it so successfully that we were able to spin it out as its own company. So it is now called Onward. It's out in the world helping now tens of thousands of families have kind of peaceful co-parenting. And we're inherently being impactful back to where the story, you know, around my own kind of awakening kind of happened. Like, I love that stuff, right? So how do you not just build innovation, but understand that inclusion is innovation. Sustainability at scale is innovation. And so how do you make only things that are worth making, right? That actually help us get out of the sticky situation we're in as a species. So the coda is I left City last year, a year ago, to join Co-Created as its fifth partner. And so I spend my days venture building with corporates and increasingly only really focusing on companies that want to affirmatively invest in better futures. So that was longer than I've ever told my story, but you gave me the space. So (laughs) I've learned more about your story in this (laughs) 15 minute snippet than us hanging out, you know, at the Ace Hotel in Manhattan. Uh So I just feel really grateful. There's so many pieces. I want to rewind back to something you said earlier, because I think you know, this whole idea of innovation for inclusion, I might argue it, two starts, right? Parents, but the, 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 the direction I want to go in selfishly, I think I've told you that both of my daughters go to a Montessori school. Yeah. Right. And I've all, so this should not surprise you because I've told you this and is folks that I have met as adults who've gone through Montessori education are some of the smartest, most critically thinking, inquisitive people on the planet that I know. Mm. You're one of them by far. And I'm seeing that with my daughter. So I'm curious, is this idea of innovation for inclusion, if you rewind back to going through Montessori education, things and pieces did you learn through the Montessori tradition that started to build the foundation for you to build this curiosity towards wanting to innovate and build ventures? So good question, Ron. I think the, I would, I would, I would observe that the foundational principle there is in, in like the most spectacularly mundane way, didn't feel, and I mean, I mean that, I mean, like it didn't, yeah. there, there wasn't a big production around it. There was no, there's no big announcement. This, there wasn't like a, this month we're doing inclusion in the most heartfelt, authentic way. These women largely. Yeah who were like largely Jewish women, but certainly white women in the seventies and like, you know, late seventies, early eighties kind of deal. They were very leaned into inclusive environment building. So when the holidays came, when I was making, you know, sponge paint things, you cut the sponges into shapes, there's a Christmas tree, there's a star David, right? There's a fat Santa, right? Yeah. Now they were, you know, Kwanzaa was not yet kind of on the radar, but then it was right. Like, like, they were just, that was so built into in a way that there was no Instagram. They weren't getting props for this on social media. So I think first and foremost, there was that. Now, how does that relate to innovation? At the end of the day, we, we talk a lot in, in like, why, you know, certainly we read a lot about, and I think in your space, like, you know, this more about this than most, like DEI, DIB, like these are all things that we tend to think of these, I think, as culture creation mechanisms like well who do we have at the table and like how much room do we give them to speak and act and whatever else let's make sure they're they're enough of the right people and that they have enough permission space to show up authentically yes yes here for it like right yeah nothing bad to say about that what i think we forget is like their lived experiences give them perspective on new ways to look at the world and solve for problems that you and i might not even be thinking about yes. so when we say diversity we shouldn't just be talking about diversity of people populations perspectives I want diversity of problem spaces to be contemplated in spaces. That is the opportunity I see because that is both interesting and also pushes us to contemplate, oh, there might be a totally different way to do this. When you introduce that kind of thinking, even if Liza didn't, maybe this is not how she thought about it 40 years ago, but that is what she was doing, right? Perspective taking and empathy together are a fucking superpower. Superpower your ability to stop and just say, there must be another way to look at this. What we started saying to our girls years ago, when we just had one, was when she'd say, why well, don't I do that? I'd say, hold on, you don't do that yet. Just the permission. The power of yet, right? The yep. power of yet, just the permission 
to allow yourself to learn. So now you're a learner and you're taking perspective from other people that you're not judging for their life. Woo! We need more humans like that. So I think this is what I believe. I've never thought about it that way. The way you frame the question, it lends itself to just showing up with a little more compassion, a little more heart, being able to pour into other people that maybe are not familiar to you, but you also learn so much from them that you take this webbing of like different lived experiences. And so you see different possibilities. So I think that maybe, maybe that's it off the top. Yeah. Well, let's bring your parents into this space too. You talked a little bit about your parents, your, I think your mother came from the South, dad from Harlem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You talked a little bit about how they raised you. Talk a little bit about them into the space of helping you build this idea that innovation is so important to build for inclusion. Like what, what, what were the foundational pieces they were teaching you? Yeah. And, and look, and just to, just to like, you know, beyond, beyond message a little bit, because I guess I think it's an important concept. Like not only, I'm not just saying to build innovation into inclusion. I'm saying that like innovation is a big word, Ron. And I'll, yeah. I promise I'll come back to the question, but like, this is okay. super foundational for me. Okay. Innovation is a really big word that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about. And if you look it up, I, I promise you, Google it. Yes. And the first page with just the word innovation, and it's got all this stuff on it. And a lot of the definitions are about technology or like, you know, McKinsey or Harvard Business Review originated kind of frameworks. And there's all this stuff. And I'm like, hold up, hold yes. up. And I finally, for a talk that I, I wrote three years ago now, two and a half years ago now, that I've given a bunch of times, inclusion is innovation. And the reason why is because foundationally, innovation, I believe, is as simple as helping real people make real progress. Why do I anchor in people and progress? Because it's measurable and because it's a state change. People, companies, groups, communities that were stuck become unstuck, whether it's because you deal with technology or service redesign, or it doesn't really matter. The point is, the innovation sometimes is, wow, there was a thing that we couldn't do, and now my people have been set free. That is innovation. Now, if you think about it that way, and you're saying, hold up, is innovation really just helping people make progress? And if you say, well, damn, that's a pretty good definition, and all of a sudden you realize, well, then the place to point that thinking is, in all the places where people are stuck, there's nobody. There are no groups that are more stuck than marginalized groups in the world, in the global South, mm-hmm. in America. And so there's chock full, just sets of challenges that like are worth looking at. So it's not even just building inclusion, it's our building innovation to inclusion, the act of finding ways to systemically, systematically, and at scale, execute on inclusion. It means that we've rethought systems. It means that we've developed new models. It means that we have uh, new commercial offerings that like didn't used to make sense because we thought it had to be for mass market. Mass market really meant white. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is innovation. Same for sustainability. Figuring out how to do more with less is innovation. Figuring out how to new material sciences so that you don't have to club baby seals to get a fur coat is innovation. And then give to Greenpeace. And we call that you know a system of uh, transferring externalities back in a the real innovation is figuring out the hard stuff. So sorry, not to, I, I'm, I'm going to get off my, that is my, yeah, no. I love, I love the, the sort of idea of always in, interrogating, like, what do we mean when we say innovation? Real people making real progress. So to the question of uh, what are my parents, how do they instill that? I think, it, again, I think in some ways, what Tabika, my mom's name, what, you know, what, what she sort of instilled was this right, wrong or other, whether or not she grounded me in like a really good set of frameworks for like how to take big, hairy, audacious goals and break them into like addressable bite-sized tasks and then project manage it. She did not. Um, They did not. They certainly instilled a sense of you dream as big as you possibly can because you're smart and then go do it because you can do anything. And I think that, that idea that like where a lot of other, man, we break kids down when we tell them what they can't do. You, You can't Cut your sister's finger off with a, a you know a safety scissors. Don't do that. We should tell them that. But like when we tell them, even accidentally, what's like not allowed, we have to be so careful because they build those walls around themselves. What girls can't do or boys can't do, whatever. Yeah, that stuff sticks around. And as pertains to like this kind, I just man, I just got a steady diet of you can do anything. You can you can be anything you set your mind to. And so I don't know if that necessarily was about innovation, but it was this idea that like, if it doesn't exist, make it exist. That was how they laid the yeah. foundation for me, to be honest. Yeah. 
it's so easy to see all the images that are put out there and even the way that we were educated. I mean, obviously, Ron, you and I went through, I mean, we went to Stuyvesant High School together, right? And, you know, being around before we got on the official podcast episode, being around so many smart people and there are levels of intelligence, both like, you know, IQ and EQ to Stuyvesant that at some level levels you up and let's not forget, I'm sure we could shout out a lot of the amazing educators we had at Stuyvesant, right? Totally. But there's something you talked about that I'm going to relate to a lot of what I've seen you post on Facebook when I got a call to the space, our boy Rodney Jackson will often tag you Mm. with things. And that's about your love for hip hop, right? And you talk about your love for when we've talked about hip hop, and we talked earlier about the cypher. And one of the things I've seen in the arc of the, the way you've described your career, Rod, is you've had a cypher of a career, man. I'm like, damn, <laughs> you've done all. Like, so when you think about the idea of a cypher, you could define that better than I can, right? Because let's be clear on some things. I, I love hip hop. I'd be embarrassed to try to like spit and freestyle, right? I, I'd be better <laughs> off if you said, Ron, here's a mic and karaoke, go sing 70, 80s love ballads. Ron, I could do that all day, and I would. You'd be like, "Holy shit! What does Ron yes. not know a lyric to from seventies and eighties love ballads love across it. genres?" And be like, I, "I think I know every love ballad that exists in those two decades." Listen, you, 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 me, some Michael McDonalds and, <laughs> right? and some Kenny Loggins. We're about. To, we're going in. We're going in. So I'm talking about, in. man. I love it. I'm, listen, I'm, I'm here for some yacht rock. I, look, we, we can, we can, we can do it all. We can. Don't even get me started. I, I'm, I'm definitely the guy that used to think that I, I disliked. St- I thought I hated karaoke. And then like yeah. cut to scene. Here's me belting yeah. out some like Michael Bolton. Eight, just Ooh. like, you know, just like, man, listen, not well. I, I did not say it sounded good. I just said. <laughs> your passion. It, it, came, from, it came, passion. came from your heart, right? Fire, fire my belly. Yes, but sorry. So yes, 100%. I'm with you. So love hip hop, but. Maybe not. Maybe not the the guy to jump on the mic and and, and bust the freestyle. But but on the on the cipher question though. Yeah. So the idea of the cipher, the career that you've built, I think in a lot of ways being a cipher. Mm. How would you think about how you've been able to learn and deepen your innovation through the idea of freestyling? Because I've you've sent me tapes of you freestyling. You've actually produced, I think, a a audio version of doing a freestyle or dare I say a cypher around like creating something around technology. I was like, Ron just fucking thinks differently than most people I know that work in tech. It's brilliant. And so idea of the cypher as freestyling is like helping you to, to, to deepen your innovational spirit. Wow. So one, I love, I like the, I like this build on, and so this is a cipher, right? This conversation, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, it is, man. I, I don't right? ever it's, want them to go in this combo until I talk with people. People don't it. think it's like that's and that's, that's and, I, and maybe maybe for the folks that are less initiated, like I think in, in a lot of ways, like the, in the roots, really of a cipher. And I think I'm, I'm going to sound like old man hip hop for a second, old man winter hip hop. <laughs> I think the freestyle has become bastardized and just kind of means people just like rapping, not in a studio, and that is not. You know, with a mic and a camera, a high def camera in their face, and they're saying lyrics that are obviously written, even if they're fantastic for the folks who, and I still like, there's still some of the new rap that I, I, I not just tolerate, but actually like, but still I would take everybody to task and say, that's not freestyle. That's not, you know, whatever. And a cypher can be kind of like, it can be a mix, right? But historically the cypher really used to hold this sort of special place, I think in hip hop, because it really was when there was just less stuff on the, on the, on the radio, right? When like not every rap had the potential on SoundCloud to, you know, like before there was a SoundCloud to get to a million people without a record deal. Right. You would bring like unwritten stuff. You'd bring partially written stuff and it was much more extemporaneous. It was much more off the top, right? Which, which I think, and it was about building with other folks. It was about like, you know, collectively going on a journey, right? So I really like, I like that you sort of brought that to this space. And so it was one of my favorite things. And I'll never forget, there was a, a kid uh, who I think was your class, a year ahead of me, so I think your class. Yep. George. Lavoisier, man, I've thought about that guy in forever. Who uh, was man? Damn, bringing Lavoisier into the space. Yeah, Damn. like sharp, sharp wit, like super, yeah. super, just witty guy. 
could mm. cut anybody down, like just like shoot the dozens as the old, old, old timers before even old enough would say. And I could not keep, I couldn't contend, couldn't keep up. And I'll never mm. forget. It was when the old, the old building was still on 15th. Yeah. Sign up, you know, with that crew, right? Like playing ball over on uh, like 6th, uh, 17th, 18th and like 2nd Avenue, wherever that court was. Remember that old court over there? And it was like something special happened that day where somebody started rapping. And I'd always kind of enjoyed poetry. Like I was a voracious reader as a kid. I really liked poetry. You know, I think I wrote my first weird love poem for nobody in particular, just like inspired by like, Shakespeare I just liked words, right? Like I always kept mm. like a vocabulary, like diary. Like I liked words. Yeah. And here's George like cutting up and like, you know, punger people. And like, now he's doing like a little bit lyrically. Yeah. And like, and then I started going around ah. and I realized I was in my first cipher. And a funny thing happened. It didn't, I wasn't nervous. Didn't think it was going to be particularly good, but whatever I had, lack for in terms of like wittiness on just the face of it of like as like prose just like saying some things to make fun of him or whoever else is in the mix man i was able to combine it with some lyricality and all of a sudden like mm. i made some things rhyme in service of like talking about somebody's mama or something and like i got laughs <laughs> and i got mm. some yo and right all of a sudden this when i, I mean I, it's funny i'm not recounting this for anybody publicly i don't think ever like this switch went on ron and I don't even think mm. I did the best that day. It was kind of okay, like passed. Yeah. Huh. But then I was on the train just talking to myself. Yo, you need mm. to pause. Yo, like take a comma. That's and it was like, something, something, your mom. And I was like, oh, I'm going to come. And the next day, mm. back at lunch, back at the court again, happens again. And I eat him up and I eat some other folks up. Mm. And I was like, I'm not bad at this. And it was this really interesting moment where you realize, and I think in life, it's important to kind of keep this openness. Like there are things that you may be good at. You need to keep working at them, but you realize that you have potential, you have aptitude for things. And like, it's wild to kind of feel something click in. It's like getting a software update over the air. Like you feel, like feeling that like you're at hundred percent. Oh, this might be, this might be me. This, this might be a thing that I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it. And so I love this idea of like, my life has been a cipher because to be honest, I, you know, I'll, I'll take, I'll take, uh, something, a buddy of mine said, you could take my life with all the scatter plots I got, you know, <laughs> like I could, I could best fit any line you want <laughs> to, to the right. dots, right? Like mm -hmm. the truth is a lot of times it hasn't made sense to me and I've kind of gone where I felt called or gone where I felt passion. Right. And yeah. I think I feel lucky, like the privilege of that, right? Like you think, man, to be able to like, halfway provide a decent life for my family you know, kind of pull my weight doing that yeah following my passion like what that's terrible advice right like it's funny somebody said this reason like some guy was like what do you hear from every like billionaire like follow your passion like hold up the best way to become a millionaire is to become a billionaire that you inherited and like lose most of it to be a million like like the truth is like it's not a good prescriptive approach to say to people follow your passion as young people who are trying to figure that passion out and also need to put food on table or if they don't have a safety net, any real margin for error because of the first in the family to go to college, follow your passion is just, it's, I both believe that it can be a, it can be a type of sensor to certainly pay attention to, but it's not, it ain't, it ain't robust advice, right? I think for most yeah. people, but I've been lucky enough to mostly be able to sort of like really skew that way and have it, it seems start to work out like in some way, shapes and form. Um, and so in that way, it very much has been freestyle. And I think you're right. I've also benefited from, you always need a person in there who's doing that beatbox. Pookie, Kadon Mack, Robert Quinones did the <gasps> meanest. Remember? Like he did the meanest. Rob Quinones, man. May he rest in peace. Yeah, man. Wait, did he pass away? That's what I heard. Yeah. Some, I, I, if he didn't, then boy, we have to cut this out the pocket, but I did hear that. Um, Oh, somebody wow. in the network yeah a couple years ago okay, i'm gonna have to wow i was just yeah. talking about the other day that's crazy yeah. rest in peace i mean so he used to do just the meanest just like incredible beats with his hands you know his mouth mm. hands always get spitty he doesn't be like yo my bad i can't pound give you a pound now because i gotta like <laughs> you're crazy, <laughs> you're crazy saliva right yeah. so one here like yo yeah. sorry but like 
it's collaborative. Nobody does a cipher by themselves. So there's a long arc to get to that, which is, I love that you, and I love your vision, Ron, because I think you see the world as well in like these unique ways. That is so connected, right? This like, you're going off the top. That's one part of it. That's an element. You're doing it with other people and together it's so much better than me just wrapping in my, in my crib, you know, in my, in my, in my shower. Like it's a special thing that that moment only happens once when it's done really well. Yeah. You were channeling voices and ancestors and like the voice of God. When it's good, I remember one or two times in my life where I was basically listening to the show that I was given. I was listening to the rap with the crowd because part of my brain was two lines ahead. And I was I was in such energy. I was so much in my mm. mode. Wow. And holding, right, just like convening a space, like truly, like lyrically, spiritually, that like I was also kind of giggling because I knew what was coming, but I'm listening to that, like, dude. I'm t- religious, man. I'm talking like yeah. possessed. It was amazing. And isn't that what we seek in life? Isn't that flow state? Isn't that we all seek that some way, shape, or form? That like being in your in your gift, in your like, right? Like in a way that's just like otherworldly. Where you're like, I don't even, I'm gonna try to hit, you know, if you're Roger Federer, even Roger Federer, sometimes I'd be like, I don't know. I'm just gonna hit this with the side of the rack and see what happened. And just like, <laughs> there it is. Well, there it is. God, There's my innovation on the spot. Yep. On the spot. And so that, so much so, so much, so I think, feeds that energy of like, don't get too caught up in what the definitions are, uh, what you have to do, what you already know. Experiment. Just experiment. That's okay. Leave space for freestyle. Leave space for extemporaneous thinking and examination. Remixing. So... Thank you. That is a gift. You just gave me a serious gift, man. You know, like riff on what that means. Like in my life, I've never seen it that way. That's super interesting. Yeah. Wow. And when, uh, the beauty of being able to have brilliant friends and guests like you on this podcast is once again, you bring the material. I'm literally ciphering off of what you're saying. Like that's really, <laughs> that's to get meta yeah. for a little bit. I, I am all I'm doing is just reacting and being in flow of what you're yeah. saying. Like there's to, to get meta about this for a second before I ask you the next question is it's a little bit of just deeply listening, hearing patterns and kind mm-hmm. of seeing how it comes around. So it happens in my brain is questions start to pop up based on what you're saying. And I sort of feel the energy of like, what seems to make the most sense to ask where we can get deeper because the, the whole approach of this is where do we, get beneath the layer. I don't want this to ever be a podcast of like, well, here's the canned questions. And it's just sort of like, is a interview of canned questions. I want it to be what you give me. I'm going to seek depth because in your depth, Ron, is where people get to see the full humanity of who you are. Is a strong Mm -hmm. belief in everyone I've ever gotten to know. I think you talked about your superpower. That's one of my superpowers. I have this ability to be able to sometimes in five or 10 minutes, this should not surprise you. I've had people tell me things in five or 10 minutes that they will go. I don't think I've ever told that to anybody. Mm. I shit you not. It happens so much. I don't even, I don't even blink. They go, do you do that to people all the time? And I chuckle. I go more than you'd ever know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thing, I, you know? And so related yeah. to that and the power of the people in our lives, right? You talked about the cipher, George Labossier, Rob Quinones, right? That selfish plug here. My book is coming out. Leverage the people who love and care about you personally, professionally. Mm. So Ron, who are those people for you today? Both that you currently rock with who are in that circle of champions and who's some of the people in the past you'd want to call out and elevate in this space? Great question, and uh, and thank you for a chance to just unapologetically hold up some other folks. So, no, no, but, but I think it's true. Back to the cipher notion, right? It doesn't, it does not, like the 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 greatest single fallacy I believe in America that and there are multiples, but like one of the greater fallacies <laughs> that I think does us a disservice and feeds other really negative nar- narratives, right? The, the better known narratives, like white supremacy, like racism, sexism, is the single inventor fallacy this idea bootstraps oh my god ron that that damn narrative kills me i hate it it kills and 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 it literally i believe kills us all right because it it is this it creates cognitive dissonance which your question cuts the center of and acknowledges right and really i think pays respect to which is like yeah nobody doing anything worth doing has done it by themselves not nobody not not a single person right behind every Mm -hmm. great man not only for heteronormative is a great woman 
and about 50 of them, but like a hundred people who like help that, but it's just, it's an, an absurd narrative, right? Yeah. So yes. So this is going to embarrass her because I think she may be able to hear me, but like, I'll start with like <laughs> the now, now in the present. So I'm super inspired by my wife, like by like, like her work, right? So we've been together for 14 yeah. years. I've learned mm-hmm. immensely from her and in part yeah. being in the relationship, being in, in community with her and, and just like watching her work and being a super fan, but also having her support my work. These, some of the notions that I have about like interchangeability and then like inextricable nature of inclusion and innovation come from watching her work. Right. Mm-hmm. And like just authentically and seamlessly and like deeply her pouring into and kind of always holding space for like, she won't do talks where in her work, is historically focused on like ASD on, on like on folks on the spectrum supporting teachers so they can build inclusive classrooms. She won't do talks where she just pontificates about solutioning for folks on the spectrum by herself. Never, ever, not never. She's going to always have a self-advocate on the stage with her. She's going to always mm. split that budget. I'm like, that's who she is, right? That's how she shows up in the world. And so like having that person that they say, you know, you judge, you judge yourself, you judge people or at least can kind of see where they might head, right? Based upon who they surround themselves with has been an incredible plus up, like just an incredible upgrade, I think, from my perspective in life broadly. You know, my boy Kofi CanCam uh, over many years, and, and then look, I'll, I'll say this very much on a hot mic. For me, it's been a process, if I'm being honest, of undoing a lot of, like, you can do anything, you are great, you deserve the world, is wonderful to hear and helps to build a person. Yeah, I think there was a lack of recognition that I didn't know at eight and 12 and 15 and 16 and 25 and 30 or maybe 35, that actually had all these gaps and knowing how to show up and execute and do well at the scale that I believe I'm intended to do well in this world. And I don't mean well, just, I don't mean money. I mean like serve my purpose. Right. There are friends that I had over the years and I doubled, I doubled back to, off the Kofi thing for a sec to say, he's one of them who stylistically, we were super different in college. So he's one of my line brothers. I have two line brothers. I'm an alpha, which you know. Mm-hmm. And we were super different. Loved each other, super different. Might not have even chosen each other if, if we'd not been brought together in that moment. And now, both he and my other line brother, Anaje Olatawa, I'm incredibly grateful for because so different and I've learned so much and I continue to learn. So I learn more now from them mm. because I'm looking back I'm like, oh, you were giving me game then, but because I did not receive it, you didn't even feel authorized to give me game. Like, Kofi's a guy who, when he sets his mind to something that he is doing for the mission, that and the mission is almost always about doing it for the family, doing it for what needs doing, he gets right. shit done. And he subjugates he, he ego death. He kills his ego in service of executing for the mission. And I could have used more than that a whole lot of times in my life. So he's a person that like, and now he's, he's just on a path doing incredible things in, in the future workspace. Naj, my boy is... He'll be 50 this year. One of the best writers, creative forces. He's actually been a teacher. And two years ago, decided in the midst of pandemic and incredible personal loss that he wanted to be a coder. And at 48 years old, that dude took coding classes and now is like a like a engineer on the rise. Like it turns out he's good at this. You talk about the pit, a person pivoted personally. Damn. So these are the people that are in my like, right? Like, so it's like, so I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I gotta, I gotta get my stuff together. Right. Cause my camp mm. is, I just got people are doing crazy things. Baratunde Thurston, dude who has been mm. just he's dope. deep, deep, mm. deep friend. He's one of my good brothers in my, in my life. He constantly like pushing with love, but elevating all opportunities as presented. You know, he's, he's the person who's always like, you got to talk to my boy, Ron. Like, He's that guy, right? Never, ever too busy to promote other folks, right? In service of, again, the mission, right? The bigger cause. Values that, you know, I think he, he will not sacrifice, right? Uh, in exchange for commercial outcomes. So been great to sort of like watch him work and grow. And also he's taught me over now 12 years of us being tight, like overnight success after many years, right? Like just that, that, that grind of you do the thing that you want to be good at every day. Yeah. Not because it's going to work day one, you know, kind of podcast episode one, season one may not be the thing that hits, but because you want to be excellent at that thing. And I think he's been, he's been exceptional at that. If I dig back in the crates a little further, I think some folks that have also just, again, it's like people have taught me along the way, like, oh, you just you stay and you do like, you just, you keep, you keep working at it. There's a uh, brother uh, named Craig Robinson of all people. Like he and I used to, you know, famously we'd sort of tussle. And again, it was just stylistic. Like it didn't, I didn't sort of see like 
some of the wisdom that this guy already kind of figured out for himself. Mm. I think that's a, that's a big trope for me is my personality, I think as a younger person lent itself to people wanting to, wanting to follow me, but like saying you're a leader, you're a natural leader. Like you're, I was charismatic. Like I kind of got people to, they want to jump, they want to do stuff. They want to hang, they want to have fun. Right. And I mistook that. I misunderstood that. I misunderstood that. Right. For like mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. Being charismatic is not the same thing as being a real leader and real mm-hmm. leaders. The good leaders are servant leaders. And so I think a lot of what you probably heard a few different ways is like the people that I respect probably most are the folks who are not just mad creative geniuses. I I got lots of people like that. They're great. I love them. I can do some of that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doing more of that is not the mission that I'm on now. I'm on the mission of like, how do I actually serve this purpose? And so that list of folks, they're just folks who I think have done an incredible job of being uncompromising and showing up and doing the hard work. And to be honest, you're on that list, man. You're you're a guy like, I just feel like I learned from... I learned from people in my life that are relentless uh, about making themselves better, especially when that's attached to like real virtues, like real, you know, real mission. So, yeah. Yeah. We have so much to chop it up about in terms of being relentless. I just did my first powerlifting competition. Whoa. And my body hurts because I'm soon to be 48 and... It's hard on the body, but there's nothing, you know, the lesson that I've learned that I think if I tie into the story, right, is at some level, like I'm trying to innovate for my body mm-hmm. and my mind and my soul with powerlifting being a dimension of that. And certainly my mindfulness practice. And there's something really beautiful about going through the grind of a training, mm-hmm. sticking to it as much as possible, but also knowing that life happens. I got injured during part of it. But the injury taught me something around how I needed to strengthen a part of my body that hadn't been as strong. And so fast forward to, you know, the the competition where, you know, the result was the results. Like I almost didn't care about the result, but I still got a really good result. But I wasn't coming into it worried about the result. But I was starting to already think about was what's the next cycle of training? Where do I keep building from here? There's a mm. certain level, I think, of relentlessness that I think I've been taught to not be fixated on the thing, but be fixated on the journey, be fixated on the habits. If there's anything that is a, another learned superpower is my superpower is geeking out about learning and, and habit building. Mm. Because there's a lot of shit that I do pretty well because I've geeked out on those processes. I, I rewind back to like Stuyvesant. It's like, how are there so many smart damn people here? And I would watch folks like, Guy Maytal and, and, and Sanji. There were so many brilliant people in our class. I'm like, uh, oh, it was a master class of watching how people learned. Mm-hmm. And then I took that into college and I took that into other learning environments and was a part of organizations where I was part of a lot of organizations where there are just really brilliant learning minds and people knew how to build learning environments, similar to what your wife does, right? She's a yep. master building learning environments for a particular population of folks. Right. And there's a brilliance about when you unlock that, there's really not a lot that you can't pick up. It's not always about whatever people deem as greatness, but if you can pick something up, like going through my swimming lessons right now, <laughs> I, I would rewind back in time and say, Ron Rapitalo, we're going to teach, we're going to get you to swimming when you're eight, five, not 46, <laughs> because it's it's just harder. It's hard to unlock. My body's yeah, different. That's right. I, and I, I like to think of it, the mental model I have is it's it's grooves. So I'm not always good at establishing uh, new habits. When I do successfully establish them, I, I can I can get pretty hardcore about them. Um, and it's, it's just the way my brain is wired. It's like, I'm, you know, yeah. like novelty is is uh, is like catnip, right, for, for my brain. <laughs> this is why you and I are, this is why you and I are boys, right? Because I'm the same way. It like yeah. will kill the misses. Got a shout out. Shanita Rapitalo here on the podcast. Yeah. No where doubt. she will see my brain floats left and right. She's like, totally. Rod, are you here? Are, yeah, yeah. are you with us? And I like, literally, I'm not oftentimes with her or with, the because moment. my mind yeah. will, if it goes somewhere, I it's literally go. lose time and space. It's, yes. I don't even know what it but, is. But it's my brilliance, but it's also like the thing that at times, like I need to keep on Yeah. And it's, it's, and I mean, look, I, you know, I, like I, I alluded to my extremely extended version, director's uncut introduction <laughs> of my background, right? Epic. I hope you edit that, please. Mm-hmm. Um, in a work setting, it can be problematic. In a relationship setting, it can be problematic. 
But what I appreciate is, I think, again, this relentlessness in part that I appreciate about you and some of the folks I mentioned is it's a willingness as much to commit to investing in a, a new version of self. So, you, you know, it, it's I almost want to take the, does it work? Does the definition work? You said, I want to innovate on myself, helping real people make real progress. In this case, you're talking about one person. Yeah. Are you doing things that help you unlock new abilities? You are. And you're putting the work in through the, even though your brain triggers off novelty, you have tricked it into or been able to harness the novelty here is I'm going to do this new process and there will be good that comes out of it. That is the thing that I'm actively working on myself. I'll sort of throw that out and sort of say like, that's a, that's a big, big, but I just want to give you kudos for that because that's a, that's a superpower unto itself to be able to unapologetically be like, I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to pivot. I want to do new stuff and I'm, I'm going to try it. And then I'm going to stick to it. Like that's trying something is easy. Like I'm going to try sticking to it and then actually stick to it is not easy for a lot of folks, which I think is dope. And there's, there's like a fun little thing that I've been saying to companies that I'm now, I'm now writing about a little bit, which is don't wait to be great. Right? Like, I think we have a, 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 a missed concept in Western society, especially like the, you're going to find your purpose if you follow your passion and then you're, you're going to be great one day. That ain't it. Like you get there because you were kind of crap at it. Like I, it, what I learned out of college, Ron, we didn't talk about this at the beginning. It was like why, when we were mm-hmm. not recording, but like the people that come out blazing out of college are not the folks that have always had access to lots of opportunities. They're not they're fine. Some of them do. It's the folks who busted their asses, right? Who like yeah. were at state college trying to get to NYU, right? Community college trying to get to Harvard, like whatever it might be. They transferred last possible year they could. They paid their way, like they did all the things. They were smart, but it wasn't. They were smarter than everybody is told by test scores. Just worked really hard. Smart, sure, but they just worked really hard. That is dope. And so if you take that, the equivalent of my world is like, so when companies keep waiting for that breakthrough, I'm like, what y'all waiting for? This is going to come from being unafraid to try being bold, to experiment. Or by the way, you will die. And an experimentation and ciphering. I might have to bring that into like corporate venture building world. Like, yeah, man. And like inviting people to the mix and somebody dropping a beat. You will find your flow, right? You will find that new yeah. thing. Don't wait to be great. Like start trying and then building a habit of trying and learning now. It's the silliest thing. Startup, same way. No startup worth its salt. I was like, yep, this is our one good idea. We're just going to we launch it once and then we see what happens. That's not how that works. Right. From the minute you launch, you're learning. From the minute you find product market fit for the uninitiated, right? that's when you have the feeling that like you can consistently acquire the customers, give them something they use, need, or happen to pay for, and they keep coming back to use it. And that tells you that you've solved a problem better than either an unsolved problem or a problem that you've solved so much better than some other product or offering that like they will stick around from the minute you even find that the market, those people's lives are shifting and drifting and your product market fit is too. That's the dirty secret is nothing is static when it comes to humans and human systems, human development. Mm. So don't wait for somebody to roll up to you and be like, this is fantastic. You got to run to that greatness. Even if you got a jog or limp to it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Ron, as we're near the hour here. And I always like to ask this question before we end off. And I'm going to clue the audience into this. You were the inspiration and the the agitator that told me to think about creating Ronderings. I don't know if you remember this, Ron, is that I was so stuck on, this is probably, I don't know, 16 or 17, maybe around Mm -hmm. talking about blogging. I need to get my voice out there. Where he's like, Ron, you know, like if that doesn't work for you writing big blog pieces, why don't you microblog? I said, what the fuck is that? Micro what? He's like, Ron, you know, those status updates you have in Facebook and LinkedIn, that is a microblog. I'm like, mm. wait a minute, word? And so fast forward, I made a new year's resolution commitment to start writing ronderings. I think in 17 mm. on Facebook and LinkedIn. So the idea of ronderings, I have to attribute audience like no one i don't think i've written about no one like but it's you mm. the, the 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 formation of ronderings the microblogging of facebook and linkedin the hashtag this podcast you know 
I'm I'm indebted to you for inspiring me to build that space. So what is your rendering that you want to share with the audience? Well, I mean, this is so one, thank you. Uh that's beautiful. And I, that's that's uh you know, we talked about your superpower. I say succinctly like being able to see inside of people that thing that, that you know they sort of don't they don't maybe see for themselves. But in, in hearing them and hearing their passion and kind of asking pointed questions, like that opportunity for like the thing in the world that should come to existence that they should steward uh, is kind of my superpower. So like that's, that's uh, you know, and I was just enjoy your voice. So it's, good to, it's been good to see more of it over the past one, two years. I had no idea though, to be honest. And that's beautiful. Also, as a fellow Ron, this is excellent. Right? <laughs> Here it goes. I, get to, I get to, without violating, you know, the trademark, I get to, I get to do a, a, a rondering tra- TM. So here, here's what I'm rondering about uh, every single day. I think about how to scale impact, not as like a theoretical exercise, but as a, I think the human condition is, in, we're in peril, right? Uh, both from what feel like outside forces, but they're really conditions that we certainly help to create uh, in terms of environmental and socially 100% all us, again, like we just manufactured this, this powder keg of a society. And so what I, what I think about every day is alignment of impact to a sustainable way of living said in simpler words like impact can only be something that uh, really progressive crunchy people think about over here and like we yeah. applaud them and laud them but then go our, do our regular jobs and make our regular waste and kill the environment a little bit over here but then like we really hope they work it out on the dei and like sustainability front like we have to bring these worlds together of how we make our societies how we make our kind of commercial and market economies and how we make impact. And so every single day I think about alignment as a way to kind of hold the space for the most sustainable way to keep investing in good is to change how we do business, right? Mm. Like to fundamentally shift the ways that we do business. And what I mean by that, just a really concrete example is, you know, if you think today about the disclosures box on a credit card statement, right? It is tiny, tiny font, tiny, tiny print. It is not designed to be read or understood. And we're, and we're yes. both laughing about it, right? But that's a feature, not a bug. Why? Because at some level today, the regulatory requirement is only that you disclose. There's no requirement to make sure that customers understand. And that's because your business model, if you're a credit card company that relies on people revolving, meaning they, they can't pay down their balances every month, and that's the best company, the customer in the world for you. They're going to pay thousands of dollars of interest on that $800 couch over the course of the next five years. That's not illegal. They're not hiding it from you. It's there in print in that disclosure, what the rate is, and yet most people don't understand it. So as a really concrete example of impact, how do we shift business models in that environment, for instance, and say, well, what if the burden was on you to make sure people understand and make better choices and you make money from them when they make progress? That's real innovation. They do better. They don't wind up in debtor's jail, whatever else. Mm. And so then it's not tiny print, it's something else. But that kind of like application of thinking, how do we align the interests of consumers and companies, environment and humans, humans and humans and say like, look, there is enough. That's the summation of my rendering is there's enough in the world. Our problem is not that there are truly not enough resources. It's that the hyper concentration of who has those resources is such that there just doesn't seem to be enough for the rest of us. Mm. We need new models, yeah. we need new ways to align interests, and we have to be unafraid to pursue those things. Well, Ron Williams, I'm excited to partner with you on us building new systems. I don't think the audience knows I'm going to put it together here because they probably have heard me say this in other episodes, but you and I were both born in East Flatbush. I'm a I'm Kings County Hospital, you know, baby. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think man. about like our, our origin stories are- That's right you know, Marvel comic superhero stories and in being here. I'm I'm excited about the legacy that you and I for our families, but both for folks who look like us, right? Or can build towards just a more just future. Like if if there's anything that I am inspired about continuing to live in my body for these next umpteenth years is for my tombstone to say I did something like that. That's right. Otherwise I don't know if not to say that this is getting a little meta here, 
my life has had purpose. I feel in these 40, it's, it's been pretty tremendous. I'm excited to now take all of what I've learned similar to you. I'm like, wait, wait, we've got this alchemy of expertise and people and making a lot of mistakes that wait a second, when we create something, people go, damn, that is good. How did you do that? I'm like, did you see all the other stuff that we tried? Like, I don't get to this right. without all that. And so that's the story to often elevate for folks. And how do we in building systems ensure that folks just don't have to go through those same mistakes to be able to not only have opportunity, but to have access to a world of things that they've all, we've always deserved. I mean, that's, that's the tip off. Like I was thinking about the as you were riffing on the disclosures part of credit cards, I was thinking through pharmaceutical commercials where they talk yeah. through all the symptoms and totally. it's always with happy music. I'm like, ain't that some ish? That's some crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, and disclosing, but with, that's, it's if you think about it cognitively, if you have happy music like all the other stuff, like you're going to have violent diarrhea and all these things because the happy music yeah. is telling your brain one thing. It's not listening to the words. It's seeing and all these beautiful images of people doing great things. You don't worry about the side effects, of course, right. even though it's being disclosed because your, your brain's being tricked. They put 100%. money and research into it. Of course, they're disclosing, but it's not being built towards, well, you know what? If we really had a product that was going to do good by you, we would let you That's know right. transparently what the effects and are. And still let you make the choice. That's exactly Bingo. right. And, and, and to loop it back to something we said earlier really quickly – you know, when, when we when we think about what's fair and who takes responsibility, who's accountable for decisions, I think we've been trained to believe that well, people do things on their own; they make choices themselves, bootstraps. And so, if a person doesn't know better than to like read through the document, hold up, nobody reads those disclosures. Nobody listens to the 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 one and a half x speed, you know, disclosures about some drug. And then fully understands what it really means in their lives. They know that they have a disease. They know they're scared. They know the doctor, who may also have perverse incentives, said that they should do it. Right. And so what if instead, overall, we sort of made the externalities internal? If we understood, like, for businesses, you don't get to secretly bait and switch people out of good choices and then, like, buy carbon credits to offset or then dump dirty water in Flint and not face consequences. What yeah. if we forced more systems to truly internalize the cost of misdeeds what if we let even even for our brothers and sisters who are off course and don't realize they're caught up in a racial narrative that doesn't serve them that like yo everything could be cheaper if, if bottles of water didn't cost 800 bucks because we have insurance companies running around where their big innovation is trying to find new ways to non-renew and new ways to deny claims like these things are not that's going to come across a random stream of consciousness it's not these are not unrelated Right. When yeah. we think of ourselves as disconnected from our communities and from the broader set of communities that we're all a part of, the nation, the globe, it creates these perverse incentives to be selfish and to uh, fight to like box the resources and build walls instead of tables. And as we start to break down these things that have become normed of being isolated and how we think, even though we're connected globally, of taking responsibility, of wanting to only make money when we're aligned, when people that we serve do well, as opposed to obfuscation as a strategy, tricking them into continuing to pay us. Mm. AI is here, we didn't even touch AI. There aren't gonna be hidden fees anymore because you're gonna have a chatbot whose only job, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, is gonna be to point out stuff that is out of whack, out of alignment with the parameters you set. Oh, that 20 bucks that you don't have time because you're doing well to chase mm. down from that cable company? Yeah, Chatbot's gonna write that letter. Chatbot's gonna chase that money down and do it for you. So live in the light starting now. Rebuild these models starting now that align you with customer and community and a better set of futures. And call me if you can't figure that shit out. Yeah. So Ron, before I let you go, is there anything you want to put on blast for what you're doing for the audience? I mean, I think, I feel like that last bit accidentally was felt like a commercial, but it's true. It's like yeah. this, is, this is my work, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is, yeah. it is I speak about impact as innovation, as a vector for innovation, as, in, as just indistinguishable from innovation. A lot of my work is looking at opportunities to assess, you know, where inside of an ecosystem you have permission to really lean in, to impactfully build innovation that's commercial, unapologetically commercial, unequivocally impactful, right? That is the mission for me. And so anybody who's interested in doing that work in public-private partnerships and getting together the philanthropy side of the, 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 the company with 
the innovation side of the company, the growth side of the company to figure out what if we remade our whole business? We're not gonna fix four and 500 year old problems with a single year's budget for DEI and a little bit of sustainability, some SDGs. If we have 400 and 500 year problems, we need thousand year solutions, right? We need to fundamentally re-examine how we do. That's what I think about. That's what I dream about. That's what I work on every day. So Man. call me, happy to come talk yeah. to teams about it and or figure out with teams what they can do about it. Ron Williams, I love your brilliance. Love you as a human, appreciative of uh, you rapping with me on Ron's ring. So audience, yo, we, we got more fire coming, man. I hope you are ready for it. So more fire. We'll, 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 <laughs> be on, we'll be on soon again. Later, folks. Awesome, brother. Love you. Thank you. Peace. All right. Love you. Wow. I found out even more about Ron Williams just chatting with him this episode from bit more about the story of his parents, the impact of Montessori education as a foundation for him to see innovation, our experiences, his lives in high school, and the different places he worked at with this real thread of innovating to build more inclusion so real people can make real progress. It's not only a headline for Ron Williams, folks, it's a, it's a way of life. It's his way of being able to reconcile the way he saw the world where he was presented with incredible opportunities, but others that looked like him did not. So I appreciate you, Ron, and Ron Dering's audience. I'll check you all out soon. Peace. <laughs>